I'm Isabel Allen, editor of Architecture Today. You're listening to 80 Conversations with Inevidesk. You can subscribe at architecturetoday.co.uk forward slash podcasts. My guests today are communications guru, Rob Fien, and Satwinda Samra, who's an architect and educator and director of collaborative practice at the Sheffield School of Architecture. And we're going to talk today about the very um, peculiar codes and languages that architects as a tribe have developed and whether they serve any purpose and uh, if not, what we can do to dispel them. So I'm going to start with you, Satwinda. Um, I know you famously described architectural education as um, a sausage machine and moaned about how long and insular it is. (laughs) So how far do you think all those years of study and introspection are actually about learning how to talk a secret language as opposed to learning a useful skill? Um, That's a great question to start with. I think uh, architectural education is quite long. It's quite arduous. It's quite expensive. um, It's quite privileged. Uh, I think sometimes um, that time is not best used. And, and some of the kind of cultures of architecture are what I call the myths of architecture, such as long working hours culture, um, the idea that uh, to be good, you've got to be really serious. Uh, and also it helps if you don't smile, you'll, you'll, you'll gain further trajectory into your career. The more sort of sad you look, you just need to look at architecture <laughs> websites, um, look at the lack of colour, the lack of diversity, um, and I think some of these traits come out of architecture school. I also think there's a, the idea of the competitive edge, which inherently comes out of architecture schools. These, these are not good things. And I think these are things that architects kind of carry into their future career. So I, I wonder if we, if we did a bit more listening and a bit less uh, sort of eulogising, we, we might be in a better place, not just within schools, but actually as a, as a profession itself. Okay, so building on that, Rob, your job to an extent is teaching architects how to communicate to an audience. Uh, Are we thinking about this the wrong way around? Should you actually be teaching them how to listen a bit more and learn? I think there was, um, I didn't invent this. So, you know, someone once said, you know, try and describe your projects as if you were talking to your dad in the pub. And I think I thought that was a really good, that's a really good um, wake up call for architects because they do have the skills to talk legibly and they will often, you know, because I'm not architecturally trained, they'll often break down a scheme into very simple baby like terms um, for their idiotic PR. And um, I can take that and almost translate that. And it's, it's good to go for a public audience. So it does feel that there is a layer that is suddenly added so it's not it's not that you're kind of having to 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 relearn anything it's it's actually that there is a sort of either conscious or subconscious layer that gets that gets applied and it's it's you know it's it's to do with habit and it's to do with um a a process of learning and thinking about spaces and i think the language is is tied to how you they conceptualize buildings but is that going back to Satwinder's point? Is that about trying to assume a gravitas and a sort of fear of almost uh, if they demystify architecture too much, everybody's going to think there's nothing special about all those mysterious years of education? I, I, I think there's a slight element of that, uh, but I think it's actually 
you know, it's the opposite. I think it's more an element of fear. They, they, they're scared to go out of a sort of the prescribed routes has been laid down by them, by them, you know, over decades and maybe longer. And so I think it's, it's kind of like towing the line more than aggrandizing. All of the architects I work with um, have wanted everyone to understand their buildings and their processes. So it's, it is no ulterior motive. I think I think it's just um, it's it's just a sort of entrenched discourse. They can't help themselves. <laughs> no, 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 and and it's wonderful when you unlock it and everyone feels that when when the architect feels like their work's being taken seriously, um, but also that you but there's a it's clear that a mainstream audience understands. I think everyone's really happy. Mm, I think, I mean, it's interesting because I've started more and more now um, getting architects to talk about their work and then publishing it as a dialogue precisely because actually when they relax a bit and talk, you kind of unearth all these wonderful insights and (laughs) excitement and passion. Whereas actually the minute you commission them to write the definitive critique of a building, they go into this kind of and now I'm writing for the architectural press. And suddenly it kind of gets stripped down to this incredibly formal, slightly indigestible prose. So I wonder if the relationship is, uh, or the issue is as much to do with architects' relationship with writing as anything else, that they never really, I mean, we churn out essays don't we, and dissertations and everything else, but nobody ever sits down and says, look, this is how you find your voice with the written word. We've sort of assumed... Somehow it's assumed that you just pick that up. You think, I mean, Satwin, did you teach your students to write? Um, I'm not a writer. I'll hold my hands up. But um, we we do talk about tone of voice and um, quite a lot of the work I do with my students is about storytelling. So we speak about things like what is it, where is it, and how does it make you feel? Because people might... People will often forget what you did, but they won't forget how you felt when you either read something or you sort of were, were in a space or, or, or you were in a building. And uh, I think uh, w- one of the things for me is, is um, you know, the everyday. We all participate in everyday life, even architects do. So why on earth then do we sort of then distance ourselves um, in, in a way that makes us more obscure or kind of it's almost like a self-marginalization um and uh, and it is problematic because ultimately it means that we're not communicating with our broader public whoever that might be because if we we can't if we can't make what we do accessible then ultimately we, we become less relevant and there's often a conversation or the riba should do this or the journal should do this there's always someone else who should take responsibility, but ultimately architects need to realise themselves that they are responsible in terms of how they promote what they do and how they best communicate that. This is 80 Conversations with an Everdesk, making powerful, affordable virtual desktops a reality. You hear architects speak about their work and it's sometimes just a bit boring. People speak <laughs> off. Because it's just, you know, they talk about liminal space and shadow gaps and like, you know, it it is interesting. Liminal space is fascinating. But if you want to interact with a broader audience and make yourself more relevant, and it's not the dumbing down, it's actually bringing people on board will always make what what we do more um, 
purposeful and you know you know take people with us do you know what it feels like a, a good radio show in the making doesn't it i mean can you explain can you make liminal space sound interesting and accessible to me in two sentences i'm going to put that to yes yeah, that window i'm going to put it to you well I'll, i'm going to hold my hands up i don't even know what liminal <laughs> space do I. means. i'm hoping you can illuminate do i you? don't even know what it means but it's to make the point it's to make the point that there is language that is adopted. But do you not, I don't know if it's peculiar to architects, though. I don't know, I'm sure you're not as down market as I am, but um, did you ever watch, there was a programme on Channel 4 called Faking It, and it was absolutely brilliant. They they would always get, I remember quite clearly, there was a pole dancer who lived at Elephant and Castle, and she had two weeks or something for experts to train her up to be a, I don't know, it was something to do with horses, I can't remember if it was dressage or... Um, and they would do this thing week in, week out. And what was incredible is on the technical skills, it just felt like anybody could learn anything with the right teaching. They could become a hairdresser, they could become a boxer, they could become a horse rider, they just picked it up. But every time without fail, what rumbled them was this kind of interview at the end they did with industry insiders, and they just didn't say the right things. They couldn't learn the language. <laughs> so, I mean, I don't think it's architecture, is it? I think it's part of the nature of you know inventing yourself as an adult and deciding who you want to be is is deciding it's, it's very tribal it's just a kind of middle-class middle-aged form of, of gang initiation isn't it it is but i think and i'm speaking now as a as a punjabi brown man in a predominantly um in a, in a predominant industry that isn't like that um, and, and I've got lots of experience and I've been in lots of different arenas. But even now, I still feel slightly uncomfortable because of, because of the way I talk and maybe it's the words I use. And, and there is this kind of, I think the language um, can actually become quite exclusive and really the language should be inclusive to make people feel like they're welcomed. Um, uh, and, and I think you're right, this idea of a tribe tribes like to kind of keep things to themselves Uh, Mm. you know so there's a there's a bit of that going on perhaps well I think also that the need for acceptance I mean Rob I'm, I'm curious to know in your professional life how much really do you think that your clients are asking you to give them respect and credibility amongst their peers rather than speaking to a broader public I think yeah it's a complicated question because they all they all want to be recognized for the hard work they've done and they want to win more work which often which often involves untangling all the nonsense dialogue because um clients don't speak it so there's that side of it but i guess at the other side there is a healthy desire for peer recognition and I, and I think that's totally positive because I think we all get better when our peers, you know, and I think architecture today does a great job when architects review other architects' buildings. They understand, they understand the processes that have gone into making those buildings and all the constraints and, they, and the, you know, the local conditions. So, it, you know, I think it's wonderful that that happens, but even that can happen without, you know, confusing... Um, you know, nonsense words, which as Satwinder says, often architects themselves don't understand as they are using them. So it's, mm. you know, so I think, you know, there's no, I mean, Sam Jacob argued once that architects should have a technical language so that they can converse 
quickly, you know, and, 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 you know, and uh, I understand that, but I think, um, you know, it, it doesn't really have a role in architectural publications either. So it really is a very technical thing. And then I think as soon as you get into a, any arena outside of that, uh, you know, I think plain speaking is desired amongst the profession and then to the wider audience and, you know, maybe to students to attract them to come and work at your practice. But I think, um, People, yeah, I think people do get put off, and I think certainly it must. That window must find with young people. There, it must, you know, it's a sort of level of intimidation, right? With the sort of the super theoretical architect, you you, you might not want to go and work there, or if you do, you might be terrified of your boss. <laughs> so, Satwind, are you? I mean, obviously, in some of your work, you work on television aimed at children, don't you? Do you want to talk a little bit about that job and how that relates to the general business of demystifying architecture? Um, yeah, we um, do some work with CBBC, the Dengineers, which is designing dens for kids, but also trying to encourage a sort of broader conversation about design and engineering and architecture. And, and what's been great about working with um, the, 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 the team is that we're not really allowed to use big, complicated words because people just don't get it. And that's a good thing. That's a and really how good hard? Thing. How hard is that? Do you have to? Have, do you have a sort of you know horn that you kind of every time somebody uses a word that's too complicated, you you do it? Uh uh-uh. uh. No, not quite. But we've we've just got used to it, and 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 I've brought that into my teaching and my practice work. So you know, ultimately, uh, speak clearly and try and engage with your audience. But you know, on engineers, we t- we talk about some quite complicated things. We talk about refraction, cantilevers. Um, friction, uh, you know, co- complicated engineering principles, and we explain them in a way that that, that um, they can be better understood. So uh, I've learned quite a lot by working on the show. The other thing that's been interesting is that um, it's not seen as serious by certain people in the architectural profession because, number one, it's television. Number two, it's designing for kids. And number three, some of it's a bit wacky and a bit weird and a little bit playful and there aren't many shadow gaps, you know. Mm. And again, for me, it's been fascinating because um, we're probably getting better engagement around architecture in that world than in some of the other worlds that, or the other channels that one could, one could occupy. So it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a good thing to, it's a really good thing to do. I think it's impossible to sort of under, understate the importance of that. I found it incredible as a a mother of teenagers how horrible history seems to have single-handedly transformed people's approach to history they all talk about history like that's a fun subject to do at school now which you Mm. know in my day sure as hell wasn't now why why can't you be 13 or 14 years old and do a GCSE embark on a GCSE in architecture I uh, I think that's a really good point there's something around uh the idea of academic subjects and the UK's obsession with uh, uh, high academic subjects. So there's a schism between what seem to be worldly and kind of knowledgeable and something that's seen as vocational. And the vocational is seen as, as second rate, obviously not to us and the people that we work with. Uh, so I think that's, that's one of the problems. The other thing is that uh, creativity uh, uh, in, in all its forms should be celebrated because we, without creativity, nothing happens. Um, you can have however many A-levels and however many statisticians in the room and, you know, people who've done uh, 
you know, not everybody can do PPE. Is it PPE? Politics, philosophy, and economics. Yeah, I'm getting it confused with um, health and safety. Yeah, Yeah. but um, (laughs) you know, as long as there's that sort of schism, then um, there's going to be a problem. But that's where um, encouraging children to continue and adults. All, all ages to be inquisitive and creative, whatever that uh, outlet might be, is 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 quite is quite empowering. But we and we should celebrate it more. And and often it's creativity is seen as this kind of slightly wishy washy thing, or that it's something you do in art classes, or you do it when you're finding yourself on a yoga retreat. You know, we need we need to be we need to be more inclusive of that whole kind of area because kids. Kids are kids are smart, and for some reason the education system kind of puts them in boxes, and then they have to perform and kind of be uh, compliant. And comp- you know, the best things didn't happen by people being compliant, did they? This is eighty conversations with Inevidesk. To find out more, visit inevidesk.uk. We are seeing a generation of architects emerging who think completely differently. They are rejecting star architecture and the idea of the lone genius. And I'm now working with young practices they don't, who don't want their names above the door. Um, they have started promoting junior members of their team before they even have a reputation. And they're already saying, you know, it, it's about like, if someone's going to interview someone about this project, it needs to be, you know, the associate because they did all the work on it. There's no point bringing me in as a director. You know, this is like in a practice of six or seven people. And um, they're also being very, they're also working together and teaming up and being very collaborative. And you're starting to see these collectives form. So there's like the London Practice Forum. There's the, um, there's the Dalston Architecture Collective. There's the London Architecture, uh, London Architecture Collective down south. You know, there's more. And there's, you've also got Part W and ACAN. And just people are now just joining up and they're seeing, and positive PR they'll get out of that is more than you'll ever get as an individual. I think we're on an upward curve. I'm really, really excited. I think we're at a turning point. And I think some of these professions, because they're not even doing traditional architecture, I do think that the public are starting to see them as actually people that are useful and engaging with them and listening to them um, rather than, rather than there's that sort of bad reputation we've got of the architect at the top of the tower in the you know in the jg ballard novel i think we're we are actually slowly eroding that but it's going to take a long time i suppose uh, from my point of view it just actually makes makes our job much harder because obviously you will all sops and your zaha hadids and your kind of big flamboyant personalities are frankly easy material they were easy material they're always a good soundbite and always a good photo (laughs) and so you know does that mean that the press has to work harder does it mean that the projects have to speak for themselves more clearly or actually is there a shift in society where the kind of the cult of the celebrity is becoming a bit a bit last generation and we're all growing a little bit more sophisticated in terms of the stories that we want to hear I, th- I think I think everything will always be based around personalities, and I, so I don't have a problem with people becoming the f- the face of something. And I think you know, um, you know, you've got characters like um, Space Popular, or uh, you know, Adam Nathaniel Furman, and people like that who are they're very they're highly collaborative in the way that they practice, and they're they're very you know open to sharing 
reputation and, and, and honours with people, but they are also voices within the industry. And I think they're very kind of cool and alluring voices that can, you know, can hopefully um, change the perception of the industry. So I, 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 I think you'll always need characters. And I, I, I can't see, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. So I think humans are empathic with other humans and so that they can't just, they can't just follow a style or, or a group. So I'm, I'm, I'm kind of fine with that, but I just, I just, I feel like the attitude, the general under, attitude underneath it, the sort of arrogant, I need to be top of the pile thing. I do think that's changing and it's, it just feels dated. And I think the younger generation always react against the generation before them, don't they? And I just want to go back to something, Satwinda, that you raised at the beginning, which is, uh, a sort of mythology about the fact that, you know, to be a superstar architect, you've got to live and breathe it. You've got to work all night. And there's this crazy work ethic. And um, another a quote of yours, which uh, I spotted and loved, was that you think architects should basically go home and watch X Factor at night, <laughs> which made me feel better about fessing up to my faking it um, obsession. But, <laughs> but do you think that that that's all wrapped up? Do you think in a way this idea about this sort of, you know, being an invincible workhorse goes hand in hand with the idea of the lone genius. Uh, There's definitely something around um, the idea of the individual working on their own. And obviously um, in in schools of architecture, it's about the individual project. There are more spaces for collaborative working and students working together. And uh, this idea of having a balanced life, you know, if you can't, if, if you can't uh, ha- have a balanced life yourself, how on earth are you going to design for it? You know, it's pretty fundamental. So I will often say to my students when they're working out how much time they have, I'll always say you need to work out when it's your great aunt's birthday and you need to make sure that you're in attendance because um, that birthday is really important. And and often in schools of architecture, um, the, the, the comments are more around you need to work harder or you haven't worked hard enough or why didn't you work through the night? And the, the, the students don't have any choice because they're bought into that. And then they carry that with them. Uh, the crit is problematic because the crit is about arguing your case and it's defending your position. Uh, and those traits are then taken into the into the working world. And it's no wonder that clients will sometimes say, these architects are a bit arrogant or they don't listen. You know, those cultures are, are, are permeated in school. So a, a lot of the work I do and a lot of the work we do at Sheffield is around breaking those codes down and making making things a lot more collaborative. And also, if people just themselves a little bit more, if they just smiled a bit more and they just said, you know what, I watched X Factor last night, what did you think? It's not dumbing anything down. It's just saying that you're, you're, you're engaging with life. Um, and, you know, if you look at some influential influencers on Instagram who are building their own houses, uh, you might not like the architecture, but they've got reach. And people are listening, you know, and if we don't have reach and people are not listening to what we do as a profession, we, we, we are uh, in danger of becoming even more marginalised. So I think Rob's point around the younger generation is, is, is a really good one, that, that they're much more collaborative, they have the tools, and that they're more engaged and they're more willing to listen. And if anything, it's the people who are of the um, more established um, sort of generation uh, I'd encourage them to sort of listen a bit more and maybe they need to get with the program. Look at certain architects' websites. They're just archives. Who wants to look at an archive? You know, buy the book, you know. Um, 
So about being a bit agile, a bit, bit more fluid. And yeah, the, I think the, uh, the, the, the X factor point, whatever it is, bake off, whatever floats your boat, w- watch it and talk about it. It's about real people engaging in everyday life. Satwinda and Rob, thank you very much for joining me. Uh, I find it very reassuring. The uh, future's in safe hands. Move over this generation and uh, bring it on the next. Thank you. You've been listening to 80 Conversations with Inevidesk. To subscribe, visit architecturetoday.co.uk forward slash podcasts. <laughs>